Hey there, story junkies. This is Adrienne Montoya, and you're listening to a bonus episode of Southwest Gothic. When you last heard from me, I was all froggy with laryngitis, and you can hear that my voice is better now. However, I've also gotten hung up in some research and fact-checking for the episode I was working on at the time. Yes, I'm still working on it. Getting this project up and going has an element of trial and error, and I'm sincere when I thank you for your patience with my growing pains. I'm working to bring you atmospheric stories that are faithful to the histories and cultural traditions that produced them, but that still manage to make you stop and think and shiver. A few weeks ago, I did an episode about Doña Sebastiana and La Santa Muerte, about how the picaresque spirit renders relationships with divinity somewhat more negotiable. I hope you recall the story that I shared about Pedro Ordimalas and his arrangement with Doña Sebastiana, and how he tried and failed to outsmart her. This research rabbit hole I'm stuck in is closely related. It has to do with folk religion and the non-canonical alternatives we create when traditions are out of step with our everyday lives. Southwesterners can be irreverent, but it's usually born out of a hope that things will work out if we tweak things a little, if we step away from the norms. That's where practices like the veneration of La Santa Muerte come in. She might be considered a narco-saint, but you should know that she's the queen of a larger pantheon, including my current slippery subject. So while I work out the details of that currently stalled episode, I'm going to share a little anecdote in that picaresque, subversive spirit of worship. I first heard this story a long time ago, and it's always made me think. This story came to me from a man I'll call Bobby. It's an account of something he really experienced in his childhood, a set of events that rattled him and left him wondering about the negotiability of divine favor. It's a story he still shares when he's in a contemplative mood, or sometimes when he's feeling like a picaro. You'll see what I mean as the story unfolds. Bobby grew up in a smallish town in southeastern Colorado, where his mother was friendly with many of the other women in the area, and as a little boy, Bobby accompanied her to visit these neighbor ladies. Bobby's family was nominally Catholic, but they weren't especially religious, so Bobby was always entranced by the exotic altars, well, to him they were exotic, that he saw in the neighbors' homes. One neighbor in particular, we'll call her Mrs. Peralta because Bobby doesn't remember her name, had a huge altar crammed with candles, figures of different saints, small cards with prayers written or printed on them, palm crosses, and flowers of varying degrees of freshness. At the front of the altar, though, was an uncluttered space occupied by a single figure, a carved and painted wooden figurine of a barefoot child wearing a funny brimmed hat with a shell on it. Bobby didn't know who the child was, but Mrs. Peralta said that he was El Santo Niño de Atocha, the Christ child of Atocha. Mrs. Peralta had traveled all the way to Chimayo, the shrine north of Santa Fe, to get her figure of the Santo Niño and she was very proud of it. She explained that he's barefoot because he always wears out his shoes in going around doing good deeds, and that he wears a hat to protect his little face in his travels. Nice children give him offerings of shoes to replace his old, worn-out ones, 
But since Mrs. Peralta was an old woman, she left him a tiny dish full of raisins, but only a dozen or so. It was a small figure. Bobby also liked raisins, and so sometimes when his mother and Mrs. Peralta were busy visiting, he would sneak the raisins out of the dish and eat them. He was careful not to say a word when, later that same day, Mrs. Peralta would come running out of her house, rushing to tell the neighbors about how her Santo Nino had miraculously accepted the offering she had left for him. Bobby suspected that his mother knew, but she didn't say anything either. One day, when Bobby's mother went to visit Mrs. Peralta, Bobby went looking for raisins and was surprised to see an empty space on the altar. El Santo Nino and his raisin dish were gone. Puzzled, he asked Mrs. Peralta what had happened, and she laughed that scary laugh that adults sometimes have, the dry, bitter one that means they're mad even though they're laughing. She told him that that niñito, ese squintle, had been a bad boy, and that he was being punished until he decided to be a good boy again. Bobby was only five or six at the time, and he was terrified that Mrs. Peralta was punishing Jesus. Like I said, his family wasn't very religious, but he knew now that the Santo Nino was Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was God. And even if he was a little boy, nobody should be able to punish him. This meant no hope in sight for little boys of the mortal and flawed variety. No hope for naughty little raisin thieves like Bobby. Mrs. Peralta thought Bobby's wide, frightened eyes were funny, too, and she laughed the angry laugh and offered to show him how the Santo Nino was being punished. He tried to say no, but Bobby's intrigued mother was already out of her seat, so they both followed Mrs. Peralta down the hall into a stuffy back bedroom. She asked Bobby to get down on the floor and pull a small cardboard shoebox out from under the bed. Then she told him to open it. To Bobby's horror, the Santo Nino lay in the box, face down. No flowers, no raisins, no palm crosses. Bobby asked what the Santo Nino had done to be such a bad little boy. He doesn't answer my prayers, Mrs. Peralta half yelled. She had been praying very intently for something for some time. Bobby can't recall what it was. And she insisted that the little brat would stay in his box until he learned some manners and answered her prayers. She punished him, of course, for being a disobedient child. Worse, he had been unfair to her. Are you reminded at all of Pedro Ordimalas dismissing El Santo Nino and La Virgen from his fire because he thought they were unfair? Or of his deference to Doña Sebastiana because death is fair? Then there's old Mrs. Peralta. Only a true, down-to-the-bone picara would have the nerve to put God in a shoebox and confine him to the dust and darkness under the bed. She put him in time out. His authority and power didn't give her pause, probably because he was in his manifestation as a small child. She just wanted him to be obedient and to treat her fairly. That, mis amigos, is true picaresque in everyday life. All you picaros out there, what mischief have you gotten away with lately? 
Thanks for joining me once again for another strange story from this weird, beautiful, and truly gothic spot on the globe that we call the American Southwest. I'm Adrienne Montoya, and you've been listening to Southwest Gothic. I'll be back soon with some tales of narco-saints and the dangers of isolated desert highways. For information, photos, and interesting tidbits, check out the website at southwestgothic.com or follow on Facebook or Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.